This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and a big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. You're stuck with us now until 12, so uh, strap yourselves in. We've got quite a few guests coming into the studio today. We'll be talking about a lot of things, and I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Diani. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am well, yes, I am well. (laughs) (laughs) What you don't know, folks, is before the show, she told me she'd downed about 12 cups of coffee already this morning. It was super hyper and probably collapsed by lunchtime. Sometimes you need it on a Sunday morning. (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am. My, uh, My wife watched Sound of Music last night, so... Hills are alive. Yeah, that took two glasses of red and two glasses of port, but I managed. Uh, it's, a cl- it's a classic <laughs> film. Yeah, everyone's got to love the film. It's a classic film. Well, you know, there you go. Let's get <laughs> let's segueing from that yeah. to some science. Let's get into some science news to start the show. Doctor Diani, what do you got for us? I've got shape-shifting worms for you, everyone. Oh, dear. (laughs) Um, This is quite a cool story. Uh, So a group of scientists at Tufts University in Massachusetts were able to uh, decapitate worms and then when their heads grew back, they grew back as a different species. Hey. Because, so because... Not like a kangaroo. <laughs> no, 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 no. They, they, were still, they were still a worm, but they, they came back. Because um, the morphology of, uh, or the shape of the worm, these were flat worms, um, because the shape of their head uh, is a very distinctive feature, that's how people classify what species they are. Mm, so okay. when their head after being decapitated, grows back, slightly different shape, they can go, oh, it's actually, you know, looking like a different species. And it wasn't just the shape of the head either. It was the brain structure underneath that. So, you know, it's, it's quite an interesting... So the reason it's interesting is because um, it the, the study was looking at uh, not genes, which you would imagine, you know, the way that I look, the way that you look, um, is, you know, very much to do with the genes in us, mm-hmm. uh, the genes that we have. Um there is, of course, the environment, which can affect the way yep. that genes are, you know, um, are expressed, the way that they are switched on and off throughout our lifetime, and that can have an effect. That's called epigenetics. But this was looking at a third thing. This was looking at uh, bio bioelectric networks. So this is how individual cells within an organism communicate with each other through electrical currents. And uh, so they disrupted these electrical currents um, using a chemical called octanol uh, after they chopped off their heads. poor heads. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so just disrupting that electrical, uh, those electrical currents uh, disrupted the way that the, the, bri- the, the heads developed. Um, so, you know, this, you know, tells us a little bit about, you know, the uh, evolution in that, you know, this mm. is another thing that evolution could be acting on when you're looking at changes in morphology across evolutionary mm. time. Um, but it also tells us a little bit about embryogenesis. And if you've got, uh, you know, deformations in, um, in patterning that occur during embryogenesis, it might not be genes, it might not be epigenetics, but it could actually be the physical, electrical, electrical environment. environment of, Jeez, of the growth. Yeah, yeah, so that's quite interesting. Uh, yeah, and I find it really interesting they used octanol because that's actually the chemical that's used for partitioning tests for environmental studies in soil to look at contamination from, it's like the model contaminant. Really? All oh, right. Wow. So, okay. so octanol is very relevant there and it suggests a lot of what we could do 
from our environment could actually impact this. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. Is it found naturally in soils or is it uh, something we use to no, separate soils? Yeah. We use to look at that partitioning as Just a model try, contaminant. Trying for, to find a link there between the worms and the, <laughs> and the chemical, but that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. well, the, so the octanol actually disrupts um, gap junctions, which are like channels between neighbouring cells where these electrical messages, I guess, if mm. you will, uh, are passed. So, you know, without those junctions between the cells, they can't communicate. And then, mm. yeah, these subtle patterning effects mm. get disrupted. But the weird, the, the other weird thing is then, uh, so after they grew back as a different species or looking yep. like a different species, um, after a few weeks, their, their heads actually remodelled into what the, their original species. The original head. Yeah, yeah. So... It's kind of a uh, yeah. Th- this team have done some weird, uh, some other weird things like they've grown two-headed worms and stuff. Like, I mean, these worms are you know only a few millimeters long. But um, this is a science team. Kind of yeah, interesting, <laughs> uh, interesting experiments. Anyway. Wow. Oh well, see where that goes. Yeah. yeah two-headed things coming up. Yeah. Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? So uh, slightly larger, but still small and creepy. Uh, I want to talk to you about blue tarantulas. Okay. One, did you know tarantulas were blue? No, I didn't. No. Uh, Beagles, yes. Tarantulas, no. A surprisingly large fraction of them actually are. And they were looking at this in terms of their evolutionary structure. So this is researchers from University of Akron and Scripps Institute of Oceanography, University of California, have looked at examples of when tarantulas actually end up looking blue. Uh, And what's fascinating is tarantulas from different genres um, actually Eight out, have eight times independently developed, or through evolution, blue structures. So mm. their hairs are blue, and they're not that shiny. They actually modulate their reflectance a little bit. But um, so when we talk about they look blue, remember that light is uh, looked at as in terms of wavelengths of light, and blue is around 450. And they actually noticed that all of these structures evolved to about 450 nanometers. So about the same color blue, we're talking hard to match by paint. Mm. The same Mm. color blue, eight different ways with different nanoscale structures that all interact with light to make things blue. And they kind of went, well, why? Mm. So this this means, of course, they, they absorb every other color. Yes. And they only reflect blue. They only reflect blue. So they're kind of invisible in every other color. Exactly. And And it's not because of a substance that they're making, but the way in which their casing is formed. Is that Correct. right? They're, they're yeah, casing, that's pretty cool as well. Yeah, so instead of a dye, it's actually the mm. way their casing is formed on the nanoscale actually gives this color, and there's different structures that have evolved to give the same color. Mm. And, and why they got excited about this as, a, as, a, as an animal to, or an insect to look at is most of the time birds and insects have amazing colors. Think of a mm. butterfly. Yeah, yeah. And that amazing variation is actual for sexual selection, right? A peacock's feathers attract... Uh, a male peacock's feathers attract a female because it's the plumage is different and full. As it turns out, tarantulas are interesting because they don't have great eyesight. Hmm. So the blue color is not there for sexual selection. It's only evolutionary. Hmm. And there are different reasons you could have color. It could be for heat dissipation. It could be for uh, abrasion resistance. Camouflage. Uh, camouflage. Yep. And so they're really excited about the tarantula as a way to actually study why they're blue because they don't actually have any sexual selection or it's not very likely and and so they don't know why they're blue they have speculations they're like well most of these are tropical tarantulas and and they live in sub canopy so green is actually a really bad color to be in sub canopy because you're pretty conspicuous blue might be this good balance of other tarantulas can still see it but mm. it blends in enough but but they're really not sure because you can also get these types of nanostructures for abrasion resistance and they're ground spiders so it's this whole new platform to look at 
why these tarantulas have evolved the way they have. And it doesn't have, it's not crowded with the fact of sexual selection, which makes it very hard to differentiate, well, is a butterfly that way because it's resistant to sunlight or is it trying to attract a mate? And mm. blue mm. tarantulas don't have this problem. Yeah, I'd, I'd be looking at birds and their, their visual spectrum and seeing if there's a bit of a gap in blue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, because it's got to be something like that where they're, they're either not seen or, as you said, yeah. the, um, you know, the heat dissipation or absorption is just right at that frequency yeah. given given the uh the environment they're in exactly um and, yeah and so now they have to focus on the environments and that's going to be pretty interesting because these tarantulas are in different tropical regions yeah. different continents yeah. to see what those unifying environmental factors are yeah. i hate bugs but i have to say they're damn interesting <laughs> yeah well, you know i hate them on me <laughs> i think they're amazing but uh yeah cool stuff um now, uh, I saw this great article this week um, that came out in Nature um, from Columbia University and a guy named Charles Zucker who's been working on uh, the issue of taste. And, you know, we always have this concept that you've probably heard that, you know, various parts of the tongue, uh, you know, give you various tastes, which actually is apparently just nonsense. It's yeah, a total nonsense. myth. <laughs> but, you, know, you know, when you're a yeah. kid in school, you learn this bit's bitter, this bit's sour, this bit's sweet, you know, around the tongue. So if you, sorry if I've really burst a bubble for a few people there, but it's absolute nonsense. It's got nothing to do with the way we taste. But one of the things that is interesting is the question of whether taste is something you learn or not. So smell is something apparently we learn. We associate um, strong memories with smell. We, we associate a range of things with smell. And we learn whether things smell good or bad to us and so forth. The question is, is it the same for taste? And these guys at Columbia University have been working on essentially um, – activating parts of the brain that are associated with taste that have located these parts of the brain in mice that are associated in particular in these experiments with bitter and sweet and they have used an optical activation technology essentially where you shine light and use it in chemicals to activate parts of the brain and they have said okay i'm going to turn on sweet in this in this mouse and the mouse acts like it's got something sweet in its mouth turn on bitter using this part of the brain and and it activates that part of the mouse as well so it's not what's happening on the tongue it's actually a part of the brain that is physically um telling us we're tasting this particular um this particular thing in a very specific region of the brain so the the implication of that is that we kind of got this hardwired in so the real test then is to look at a mouse that has never tasted bitter or sweet before because so they have no memory of it they have no knowledge of it they've never experienced it in their environment and the question is, if you did the same experiment on that mouse where you activated that part of the brain, would it act, you know, by sort of wrinkling its, its nose up <laughs> because it's bitter or mm, give me more, give me more because it's sweet? And in actual fact, they did, did this exact experiment and they found that. They found that this, this idea of bitter and sweet is actually hardwired into us. It's not, or at least in mice anyway, you know, it's a, a stage before you get to proving mm. this in humans. It's hardwired in so they were able to switch it on and make a mouse act as though, you know, they tasted these two tastes, even though they'd never eaten something of that type before. Meaning that we've all, well, we, all mice, <laughs> have got it in them, and it's not a matter of experience, which is really quite fascinating in terms of, you know, what we normally think of as taste. It kind of, it, I mean, it makes certainly makes a lot of sense as well because, mm. you know, sweet things would be, you know, sustenance, you. Yep. bitter, often, Poison. you know, warning. Yep, yep. exactly. Yep. You know what it reminds me of, though, is... Um, and I, and I don't actually know if this is really true or whether it's just a myth, but, you know, visual some visual cues are hardwired like animals can be afraid of mm -hmm. long, skinny things because yeah, 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 yeah. they look like yeah. snake. snakes. And I don't know if either of you have seen the... Um 
cat versus cucumber. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the cat versus cucumber. But a friend of mine, uh, one of our members of the show, Amy Shearer Tidal, um, has posted a video of her cat with a cucumber, and he, he actually walked across the cucumber, slapped it with his paw and walked off. Oh, really? Now, either Pete <laughs> is an amazing butch, I'm not afraid of any cucumbers kind of cat, or it's nonsense. Are you, are you saying that there's been, been a bit of uh, cherry picking of data for the uh, there could have been, <laughs> for this uh, particular cher- uh, cucumber picking? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dr. Shane, there's one of the implications here that through light manipulation and chemicals, the mouse could be thinking it's eating something sweet and it's not. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you. The- I mean, in a corporatized world, that. That's actually a pretty scary implication. Uh, yes, you're eating a beautiful apple. Thank you, Cadbury. <laughs> well, it, but it is interesting because when, when we, I mean, there are people with different levels of taste sensation and so forth. And Yeah, most you know, of us the, wouldn't eat an onion, for instance. Yeah, and so you, you may actually, in some cases, be able to desensitize people to certain problems associated with taste and, and whether, you know, and the other thing, of course, is that you you have scenarios where people with certain brain injuries and so forth and certain conditions will probably lose their sense of taste. And it could all be because we're pre-wired in a certain part of the brain to be able to do this. So, you know, if you if you had an injury in that part of the brain, it would stem to reason you wouldn't be able to taste things in the same way. But this is more complicated. There was a, I didn't read the details of it all. There was also an article out this week showing that people who had uh, uh, gastric surgery their sense of taste changed because their gut bacteria changed. Yeah, yeah, that's something else. Yeah. But but then but then there's you know the number of neurons in the gut is very high, okay. so the interplay between that and the brain you know there could could still be an association there with the brain. So um, it's, that wouldn't change whether or not we're hardwired for it, though. No, no, that okay. but it might affect how well that hardwiring is working. Yeah. So, but it's I just think it's super interesting that. You know, you, you always think you learn these things, you know, like kids wake up and you give them something and they, they don't like it. And then later you get, you think I'll get older and I will like it. And that happens with some of us. Well, what's happening there in the brain when we're, when we're hardwired? It's a really interesting series of questions. So anyway, uh, sorry to the mice um, <laughs> who were involved in this experiment. Um, but it is some very interesting research and I think, um, be interesting to see whether it's, um, something they can replicate in human subjects where, yeah, you know, well, the optogenetics means that, yeah, those mice were, you know, specifically engineered to be able to, you know, Do have that. those. Yeah, have that optical. Neurons, yeah. 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 Three. Triple. Uh, you're listening to 3 Triple Arts Einstein and Go-Go. It's a science program if you haven't heard this before. We are joined in the studio now by Dr. Peter Moore. He's a research fellow and entrepreneur in residence in the School of Engineering and Mathematical Sciences at La Trobe University. Welcome to the studio, Peter. Thank you very much, Shane. Good to be here. Good to see you. And, you know, we should let people know I've known you about 20 years, so I'm going to go hard on you with these Ooh, questions. All right. Yeah, yeah, it'll be good. Um, now, you guys uh, out at La Trobe put out this amazing announcement uh, just over the last week that it looks like you're going to be working um, with the with Germany's Aerospace Centre on one of the control systems um, for the new well for the International Space Station. Um, I mean, this is an has this been done by any Australian university before? Uh, to my knowledge, no, no. This would be the first time. Right. So, wh- what's the um, what's the deal? Tell us first about the technology that they want, and then we'll, we'll we'll talk about the difficulties in preparing it later. But what what specifically are they after? 
Um, thereafter, uh, an expertise we have in the engineering department at La Trobe. Uh, we have this radar technology that they've been working on for about three decades. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of know-how in there in hardware, software, and these really cool devices called Field Programmable Gate Arrays, FPGAs. And um, I had the, my German aerospace colleagues out here in February, and we showed them our labs, and they saw some stuff there, and they said, wow, we really need this now. Um, mm. Can you guys help us? So the instrument itself is a high-resolution camera for the International Space Station to image the Earth's surface. Mm -hmm. They're doing the high-precision optics, and we're helping out with some of the uh, control mechanisms to... Uh, to control the device. Mm. So is this, um, is it based on radar or is it just the control systems for the radar that are going to be used? Pretty much, yeah, transferring um, the control systems from the radar system to uh, to this instrument for yeah. the International Space Station. Okay. Can you give us some specifics about what's so fancy about these control systems? Because from, you know, the layman's perspective, it would just think, you know, well, you take a picture and you store it somewhere, don't you? I mean, what's, um, what's the big leap that they're after? Um, well... You've got the high-precision optics in this camera mm -hmm. that's used to, you know, image the Earth's surface. Then you need to process that imagery. But you also need to transfer um, the information from that image through mass memory, through the electronics, the hardware, the software. And you use these things called FPGAs. Mm -hmm. And we've got uh, a hell of a lot of expertise in that space. That's An FPGA is basically a reconfigurable um, chip, computer chip, that you can put in any type of logic into it. So... Our IP or know-how is, is pretty much in how you reconfigure those chips and uh, set them up to be dedicated to particular uh, purposes. Mm. So, Okay. Now, the environment we're talking about here is very different to what we would use down here. I mean, you guys, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, you can't use glue, you can't use... <laughs> there's a whole other stuff um, that you can't use, and there's a whole other environmental conditions, presumably, that you have to set these things up to tolerate, being temperature, pressure you know, radiation, um, all sorts Correct. of things. Um, I mean, what does this mean for the devices you've been using? Are there a complete redesign or are they already su suited for that purpose? You have to use space-hardened electronics hardware um, mm -hmm. and also you have to be careful on, on the software side of things, but uh, particular space-hardened devices. So this is technology that has been through rigorous testing over many decades um, and some of the, uh, the computer chips we're going to be using are actually about 20, 30 years old, but they're okay. proven to survive in space. So, um, yeah. But they make them like they used to. Yep. Yep. And is that, it, is that just about being able to withstand the, the cosmic rays and that kind Correct. of thing? Correct, yes, okay. definitely. That. So what would, it, what would the cosmic rays do to a normal, like your average? If you took a, a laptop up there, what, what would uh, it do? <laughs> yeah, so like, like the cosmic rays can knock out transistors. Uh, in your computer circuitry, in hardware, uh, and um, render them useless. So you need to have some redundancy in these systems. You need to have shielding around electronics so that uh, you can minimise any effects from cosmic radiation. But every now and then, uh, some yeah. of it will knock out some of the uh, the circuitry. So you've got to have uh, redundancy in there. The other thing about space, of course, is um, you know extreme temperatures when you're on. Mm. You know, you're in the, on the sun, sunny side of the Earth. It can get up to a few hundred degrees C. On the other side, uh, where there is no sun, it gets down to minus a few hundred degrees. So you have to have very um, stringent uh, uh, requirements for the hardware mm. and the software to survive. So space engineering is probably, uh, probably the highest form of engineering uh, test and verification processes required. Mm.
And you said that these some of these chips are 30 years old. They've been tried and tested. Is, is that the only way of testing them, like putting them up there and seeing how they go? Or are there ways down here that yes, you can... Yes, you can get uh, instruments to bombard these devices, uh, do a lot of test and verification on planet Earth before you send it up there. But they tend, in the industry, the space industry, they tend to want to go with things that have worked and been proven many times over mm. instead of trying to do too many new things because... Um, you can't go up there and just pull it down and uh, fix Change it up it again over. and throw it back up yeah. like a mm. like a car. So, mm. so you're designing these devices at Latrobe, but where are they made? Um, in space engineering, you have what's called engineering models, and then you have a flight model. The flight model is the actual device that will go up. Um, but before you create the flight model, you've got engineering models. So that's where you'll have prototypes, test benches, uh, and that's where you do the majority of your test and, and verification. And when everyone's happy that it's uh, it's looking good, you then go to the flight model and then that'll be the, the uh, object that goes up. Mm. Presumably, Peter, there's also the element of the launch that goes into their durability. I mean, this is this is not like getting on the tram and heading down Swanson Street. This is right. a, a very, very taxing, you know, tens of Gs and lots of vibration. I mean, I'm, I don't think my laptop would make it up, let alone work in the environment. I mean, how do you... Do, you must test for the, all of that as well. Well, we don't have to do that at La Trobe. That'll be for the German Aerospace Centre mm -hmm. to do, and they've got what we call their shake-and-bake facilities, <laughs> <Right>. their vacuum <laughs> chambers, yeah. and uh, to test those plus and minus a few hundred degrees, shake, you know, their vibrational benches so that uh, they can simulate launch conditions. Mm. So it has to go through all those... All yes. those procedures first. Mm. So, so what does this mean for in, term, in terms of Latrobe and research? Does this mean some of the the German folk will be coming out here, or you guys yes. go there, or setting up a facility? What, what's next in terms of the development post a, this? A deal? bit of both. Um, we have the the German team that we're working with. They come out and run a summer school with mm -hmm. us. We've got another one first of February next year, two thousand and sixteen, uh, where they come out and run a pretty cool course on. Satellite design technology, but also camera technology for what's called remote sensing from space, from fixed-wing aircraft, and also from UAVs. So they come in, uh, present their, the physics behind all that, how the instruments operate, how you build it, and all the products and services that come from that. So we'll have them over here at least once a year for that. But in relation to this instrument we're building with them, uh, they'll be out in February as well separately to that. We'll be over there when it comes to the final stages for the flight model test mm. verification, and we we hope well we're being sanded out for further work down the track. So mm -hmm. pretty exciting. Mm. And just in terms of timeframes, I mean, you, as you said earlier, you know the the, the German group said, "Hey, we, we need this now." Um, what does "now" translate to in terms of actually uh, getting the, the devices on the on, on the ISS? Yes, well, you're pretty limited by um, launch opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, and that will determine when, when the final deadline is. Now, in a way, we were fortunate because in between when the Germans said, we need it now, it was actually, we were actually meant to have everything finished and done by January, February. Mm -hmm. But uh, the SpaceX launcher... Um, yeah, not so good. Yeah, if yeah, one of problems. their launches didn't take mm -hmm. off, it didn't mm -hmm. blow up, didn't take off because there's this platform that has to go up before our camera goes up. So our camera goes into this platform. So mm -hmm. We've got to wait for that platform to be installed first. And the launch for that platform um, failed. So that gave us another three months. And that's so the good. deadline's been extended by three months. But, um, yeah, so the platform will go up probably mid-next year. That'll be installed, has to go through a commissioning phase to make sure it's working. Then 
our instrument uh, with the Germans should go up start of 2017, and then mm. it's got to go through commissioning. Yep. So probably mid-2017 we should have some cool pitches. Oh, sounds good. Now, just finally, in terms of, like, is this a change in the way you do things out of the trove? I mean, you... you when, you, when you're in the lab, you have this um, this great ability. You can use your hands. You're not wearing gloves half the time, you know, all sorts of stuff. But this has got to be usable for the guys on the ISS and guys and girls on the ISS. So do you get your team out there at La Trobe to put on big, heavy gloves to, to make sure that they can still operate it and, and make changes and repairs? I mean, does that have to be simulated, all of that? Like, no, you can't use that. No, that's too small. You couldn't possibly use that in space. Well... One of the design requirements for the instrument is that it should have minimal um, need for the astronauts to actually go out there and have to fix it. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to mm-hmm. make it so that it doesn't need to be fixed and yep. anything that goes wrong can be handled with software. Uh, we really don't want to have one of the astronauts to have to go out there and uh, and tinker with it. So, mm. yeah. That sounds cool. Yeah. Well, that should be a design principle for all electronic products across the globe, I think, not have to fix them all the time. Yeah. Well, Peter, look, it sounds great. And uh, congratulations to you and the team out there at La Trobe. It's, um, I mean, as you say, if this, this sounds like a first for Australia in terms of preparing materials for the International Space Station use. It's, it's an extraordinary level of engineering. Um, good luck with it. And we'll um, watch carefully, maybe get you back once the images are flowing in and, and uh, have a chat about those. Excellent. Thanks for the opportunity. Dr. Peter Moore is a research fellow and entrepreneur in residence at the School of Engineering and Mathematical Sciences at La Trobe University, and they're preparing uh, this new technology for the International Space Station. We have a guest in the studio. Ramin Shayan is a reconstructive plastic surgeon at St. Vincent's, Alfred and Royal Melbourne Hospitals, and director of the O'Brien Institute at the St. Vincent's Institute, and the clinical senior lecturer in the Department of Medicine at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Now, uh, we all thought we'd have a couple more minutes to uh, ease you into the yeah. seat, but lucky uh, we were ready to go. Now, you, uh, you've been working for many years on um, the sort of the microsurgery, the, the really small surgery that occurs after cancer treatment. What, what's primarily the difference between microsurgery and normal surgery? I mean, we've heard this term a lot. Mm. I always thought it just meant the smaller stuff, um, mm. the surgeons with better eyesight. <laughs> what, what, I mean, what, what's the fundamental difference? What, what's called microsurgery? Well, microsurgery is essentially... Uh, the first thing to say is it's a little-known fact that the first successful microsurgery operations were done here in Melbourne. So it's, a, it's very much... Hmm. Melbourne is the mecca of microsurgery. And um, these operations took place in the early 70s and now, as a testament to the success of that, that sort of school of, of surgery, has become... Um, worldwide. I mean, these operations are for things like replanting digits or limbs mm-hmm. when they're amputated or for moving tissue around, for example, taking a fibula from the leg and uh, constructing a jaw out of it after the jaw's been lost wow. due to cancer or a breast from abdominal skin or mm. any other part of the body that you can think of that where you need a blood supply that comes in a unit supplied by a vessel mm. and that you can then reconstruct a composite block of tissue. Now, the microsurgery part of it uh, re- refers to the fact that it's done under a microscope because the vessels we're typically joining up are somewhere between one and four millimetres in diameter and we do it with sutures which you mm-hmm. have uh, um, v- very much thinner than a human hair in some cases and uh, basically you can only use a microscope to see the sutures you're doing to connect the vessels and restore the blood flow so the tissue is immediately alive. Mm. So w- when you say you use the microscope to see them, mm. my question then is what do you use, what tools do you use to do the actual connection? It doesn't sound like 
like something you could just stitch up? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. Um, in the old days, uh, there's a famous story. Um, there were a couple of watchmakers that were recruited by the earliest uh, people making microsurgical instruments in mm-hmm. in uh, in Melbourne, and they used to actually dip um, a, a little bit of fine thread in the metal and construct it themselves. But in actual fact, you do use stitches. The, the okay. typical stitch is um, something that would be uh, you know thinner than a human hair. So you are actually stitching. In recent times, devices such as couplers have come in, where there's a plastic ring and some some little nails, I guess, for want of a better word. And the two rings have one side of the vein each and a hook in via an apparatus that, that screws into place. But it's all done with a gigantic microscope in the room, and we're looking down the microscope and operating with our elbows locked in, wrists locked in, and just using the instruments like a couple of pens with our fingers. Right. Oh, so you're, phys- you're physically constrained. We're physically constrained. Well, we're, we're, we constrain wow. ourselves and just yep. move your fingers, yeah. Wow. I thought that there was, um, you know, development of things like surgical glues and that sort of thing. Are they not appropriate for these tiny little vessels? Do you still need to have the, the sewing taking place? In fact, yes. Well, you, you do because uh, there are lots of variable uh, variables in the microsurgery itself, such as has the patient had radiation treatment, um, little plaques or things like analogous to atherosclerosis in the vessels that you need to negotiate so there might be 10 or 15 sutures that take place around them and each one needs to be just tailored just right so that there's no overlap between the edges of the vessels and no potential for thrombosis and and Mm. clotting within the vessels Mm. and you you talked about uh, for example reattaching digits and things Mm. of that nature i mean vessels and so forth and blood supplies i can Mm. i can get um but what about nerves how yeah uh, can we do that now can we reconnect nerves how does that work yeah, so nerves basically operate uh, when you have a nerve cut, or either surgically or otherwise, in a deliberate um, uh, move to to sort of relocate nerves around the body. The nerve that is downstream from the cut withers away and mm. has hollow tubes act as a conduit, and from the spinal cord, the nerve cells then grow back down and go down those hollow conduits from the place you connected up. Now, whether, how you, how accurately you connect it up determines how well that transition takes place, and you lose about. 50% of the, okay. the, um, the the axons in that in that transition. But yes, essentially you can connect up nerves in the peripheral part of the body and uh, you can do nerve transfers, get nerves to re-innovate into other muscles mm. and uh, restore movement, for example, when all the nerves in the arm are taken out from chest chest nerves, etc. Yeah, you mm. can do that now. Fascinating. We do that in Melbourne now. now. Wow. Um, now, one of the big areas you work in is um, with regards to cancer, skin mm. cancer in particular, melanoma. Yeah. And the sort of the, I guess, the injury that people um, incur as mm. a result of having that treatment, mm. my understanding is that it falls into sort of two categories. One is the actual cut and, you know, removal, mm. and the other is the sort of radiation or other treatment damage that occurs. Mm. I mean, talk us through those two, how they're different. Yeah. Well, essentially, um, so the example of breast cancer is a good one. In, in 1986, if you had a diagnosis of breast cancer, the average survival for five years was about 70%. Mm-hmm. Now, in the recent figures from 2007 to 2011, it's about 90%. So we're really winning. We've done that's mm. an incredible gain in, yeah. in a short period of time. The what reason we've gained so much is that people now do combination therapies. So yes, surgically removing the breast 
uh, cancer, but also surgically removing the glands under the arm if they're involved. Um, in addition to that, depending on the type of cancer, um, adding radiation treatment or chemotherapy, and more recently, uh, that we know a bit, a bit about the genetics of the different cancers and the hormonal status of the cancers using specific targeted anti-molecular treatments or, or, or mm. molecularly targeted treatments to the individual cancers. Part of the problem is, of course, that um, as a necessary uh, part of that, the normal tissues in the body, and both, particularly around the cancer, around the lymph glands, are also impaired. And they're burnt by the radiation, they're injured by mm. the chemotherapy, they can undergo fibrosis and change. And as we're getting better at helping people survive, of course, there are more people surviving. And the people who do survive, after they've, um, you know, trying to get along with their lives, they come and see a plastic surgeon often for these problems of radiation injury or lymphedema, mm. which is a swelling of the limb that's progressive. And of course, these things are lifelong. So one of the things that I'm trying to talk about at our institute and both in clinical practice and our research direction is trying to, first of all, appreciate the fact that uh, it's not just about helping people to survive, but mm. also to thrive yeah. and dedicating realistic resources and also research um, aims in, in relation to uh, the lymphedema and radiation in particular, which my lab uh, at the O'Brien Institute does, um, into trying to overcome these problems uh, in, in a sort of molecular science and biomedical um, space as well as just using the microsurgery, mm. which is what we do as well. We connect lymphatics into veins, but you can only do that for certain people, and um, and it's it's something that is at the moment cutting edge. We're trying to go beyond that and say, well, let's actually try and help the the broader population, but first recognise it as an entity so that we can mm. access some funding, access uh, the the collaboration with the patient groups themselves, and uh, try and make this into a realistic uh, scientific pursuit. Mm. So just to come back to something you mentioned there mm. around the swelling, mm. what specifically is causing swelling in these yeah. limbs? I mean, what uh, swelling of what? I guess yeah. what's building yeah. up? Yeah. Well, essentially in the body, as you know, the, the <coughs> arteries pump around the blood supply. 95% mm -hmm. comes back via the veins and there's a 5% that remains behind and bathes the cells of the body in the interstitial space. Now, the interstitial fluid um, needs to track back by an alternative system called the lymphatic system. It goes mm -hmm. from some capillaries in the skin, for example, down to some more uh, robust vessels deep down and they have valves and they pump the fluid back to the lymph glands. The purpose of that is to a bring the fluid back and keep it in a, in a balance, but also to immune regulate, find bacteria or cancer cells in that space. That's, of course, why the cancer cells get into the lymph glands and, mm. and why the glands right. then cop it when they have to be excised or irradiated uh, if the patient has mm. exhibited spread to those glands. Um, and, and as a result of interrupting those pathways, you then get a, a traffic jam or a backlog of the fluid in that interstitial space, and that's a progressive thing that then becomes crippling and debilitating for many patients. Um, mm. They can't use their hand anymore, their arms are heavy, their shoulders get dislocated. Cosmetically, of course, it's, it's difficult to then get around, and you've got this um, tight compression garment if you want to uh, try and control that, which is very difficult to tolerate in a February day in Melbourne, for example. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Now, just finally, Raymond, is, is it successful, this sort of surgery, when you try and correct this now? I mean, I can imagine quite a bit of damage due mm. to the, the radiation therapy. And, mm. and I know there's things like, you know, proton therapy and other, mm. other versions around the world mm. that are mm. designed specifically to more confine that damage mm. to a mm. small location. But given, yeah. given what we're using at the moment in Australia, yeah. which is not those techniques... Mm. Can you do enough repair work using microsurgery to get people back? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, firstly, the people who are most susceptible are those who have surgery and radiation to mm -hmm. the axilla or the underarm. Um, the patients who are having the surgery now, there's a subset who, who get some relief, but it's not really mm -hmm. good enough 
um, uh, for the average patient, to be honest, right now. Um, really what we're talking about is something that, you know, you do the same injury to two people, you get a completely different response. One doesn't get lymphedema and one does. One doesn't yep. get radiation symptoms and one does. And even though radiation has become a lot more accurate with fractionated doses, different dosing, targeted dosing and so on, there's still some genetic thing we don't understand about who gets the worst injuries and who gets lymphedema. And that's part of what we hope to, to mm. isolate and then work out tailored treatments to those genetic problems. Mm. Mm. Look, fascinating stuff, Raymond. Thanks so much for coming in and talking about it. And I hope you do get the, uh, the support and the so forth that you need because uh, we do hear a lot about people recovering and, and or, as you say, surviving. Mm. We don't hear a lot about what happens to them in the years progressing beyond that. Mm. And it's interesting to hear that some of them have so much difficulty. So good luck with the work and uh, keep up uh, the struggle. They get more and more funding. Thank you very much. I think it's the next stage of evolution for us to go beyond the cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Roman Cheyenne is a reconstructive plastic surgeon at St Vincent's, Alfred and Royal Melbourne Hospitals, Director of O'Brien Institute at St Vincent's Institute and a Clinical Senior Lecturer in the Department of Medicine at the University of Melbourne. Three, triple, listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We are joined in the studio now by our third and final guest for today. It is Professor Richard Sandberg. He is from the Department of Mechanical Engineering in the Melbourne School of Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Richard, welcome to the studio. Well, thank you for having me. Now, you're doing some really interesting work in aircraft, sort of engine design and so forth, but in particular around the computer modelling. And I, I was interested in the information that got to me through various sources, you know, from the university about the fact that you were doing about 3,000 years worth of work in one year. I mean, you know, Dr. Ray, he's pretty proficient, but he's not going to get yeah, close to that. Yeah, I feel pretty slack compared to that. <laughs> uh. So tell us, what does this mean? What does it mean to do 3,000 years of work in one year? It, it means that we use uh, very big computers and, and we try to uh, run our simulations using all the power of those big computers at the mm -hmm. same time. So, so rather than having to do one thing after the other, er everything is being done at the same time. Mm -hmm. So if we go to a big computer that has 100,000 computing cores, we, we try to use all of these 100,000 cores at the same time. Mm -hmm. And if we have a code that actually can use them well and everything scales ideally, then uh, we can shorten the time by quite a bit. Mm. And, um, you know, that example of compressing 3,000 years to a single year, that's, that's uh, roughly what we what we'll do in 2016. Wow. Now, tell us, what is the uh, scenario that you're modelling? What sort of things are you actually looking at? So, so we're looking at flow that goes through uh, components of an engine. Um, mm -hmm. This particular project is going to be on the high-pressure turbine, which uh, is, is the turbine that sits right after the combustion chamber. So that's where all the hot gas kind of hits the first row of blades. And those are the blades that actually drive the compressor, which you need to compress the air before it goes into the uh, combustion chamber. And what we're trying to understand is the, the heat transfer to, to the blades because we don't want them to melt necessarily mm -hmm. when we sit on a plane. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's good. <laughs> and we're trying to understand uh, how can we reduce uh, losses uh, further so, so we can make these engines even more efficient than they are today. Okay. So, so the first aspect really is to try to understand the physics in, in more detail than, than we've been able to do so far. Uh, the other component of the work really is to help develop better models that uh, industry can then use to design these um, engines mm. in, in the future. Now, explain something to me, because I've always wondered this. When, when you design something like a 747 or, you know, an A380 or whatever the, you know, the current uh, fancy Dreamliner is... That's the um, 787. Basically. 787, yeah. Well, you know, I was giving you a version from every company I was trying. Um, 
these these craft fly at all different altitudes, which means they fly at all different pressures. How do the designers deal with that in terms of the engine flow and so forth and making sure that there's a sufficient flow of, of air running through them at any given time? I mean, how, how does that work? That's a very good question. And, and actually, this is one of the challenges in designing a good turbine. If, if, you, if you are at, at takeoff conditions, mm-hmm. um, it has more power <clears throat> and the density of air is higher. <clears throat> so there are quite different flow conditions than when you are at high altitude where the pressure is lower. And a cruise, you also don't want to have maximal throttle because, you know, you want to save the life of the engine. Um, so it, it's a very big challenge to design it so that it's robust to all these different parameters. And in particular, when you go to altitude, the um, so-called Reynolds number, which is a parameter that describes the uh, characteristics of the flow, so whether it becomes turbulent or whether it's laminar, uh, it drops to a lower value at high altitude. And at those low Reynolds numbers, the flow is actually more complex. And, and that's where the design tools that are currently being used in industry are not as good. So, so mm-hmm. those are exactly the conditions that we, we, we look at with the higher fidelity simulations mm-hmm. that we do. Right. So lemon is where it hugs the hugs the engine or hugs the walls. Is that right? Yeah, well, is, that, is, that, is that the sort of thing you want? Um, well, laminar has less drag, um, mm-hmm. friction drag. Um, so it's kind of the th- smooth flow that doesn't have a lot of fluctuations and perturbations. Uh, in many cases, though, you want some turbulence because it mm-hmm. keeps the flow attached to the blade. Um, so, okay. so the flow is less prone to separation when it is turbulent. So there's always a good balance to find, you know, whether you want turbulence or not. Um, mm. So when, when, we're on, when we're on one of these planes, we often, uh, you, you get that little display, it says outside air temperature and it's pretty bloody cold mm. what's the temperature inside where, where the for example where the blades are which is you know quite forward of the the rest of the the actual engine i mean what how hot are these things getting well the fan obviously f- in the front of the engine will see that very cold air coming mm-hmm. in but but all the all the air that goes into the core of the engine and goes through the compressor wh- when the flow is compressed to this very high pressure it also heats up and then of course the combustion will heat it up even further so when you then have that high high temperature combusted gas going through the turbines the turbines see a very very hot gas mm. and in fact the, the 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 gas coming from the combustion chamber to the first uh, blade or vein is so hot that in principle it would melt it's it, the temperature is higher than the melting temperature of 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 the blade so that's why they're actually actively cooled so so you you bleed air from the compressor that you then use to cool the blades so that they don't melt well that's a good thing mm. you, can, you can't argue with that yeah so uh, when you said heat transfer mm. i found that pretty fascinating because the the materials that they make these blades out of are, are just amazing in terms of their metallurgy, if they're metals or mm. their engineered ultra-high temperature materials for ceramics. Your models uh, effectively would be able to to understand that heat transfer better to guide next generation materials discovery. Is that correct? That, that's true. You also want to understand how much of that heat is actually being transferred to whatever material it is. And, and ultimately, then it becomes a, a, a materials problem as well so so of course both sides have to work together and, and that's one thing we want to do in the future we want to actually look at the conjugate heat transfer so where we combine whatever happens in the solid with whatever happens in the flow mm. um, but we're not at that stage at the moment how much of the engine can you model in one go i mean i know what we're talking about here is modeling sections of it but is it, is it possible you know it's quite a complex system overall and as, as ray said with heat transfer going all over the place in in this scenario and you've got freezing cold air outside and etc etc how much can you model as a system it really depends on the fidelity of the model that you're using so so the uh, simulations that we do we try to really see every single detail that occurs mm-hmm. in the flow and, and so we are we are modeling or simulating all the scales of turbulence from the largest eddies to the smallest eddies 
you can't do that for the full engine. That's just going to be too expensive. Mm -hmm. um, so what engine companies do is they use turbulence models. And with these models, they, they can actually do... Uh, I would say they can do the full engine nowadays. It's still very expensive to do the full engine in one go, hmm. but you can uh, design the whole engine using computational fluid mm, yeah. dynamics. Hmm. And now there's a whole lot of people stuck in Bali at the moment due to volcanic ash. Um, tell us what, what's going on there in terms of those materials in the air. And uh, I mean, presumably the the design of aircraft is such that it doesn't take into account that. Po well, it takes into account the possibility of this occurring, but it says, you know, keep out of it, <laughs> don't fly through it. What, what's happening with with those materials? Well, if, if you have these particles in the air, uh, they're, they're very abrasive. So if, if they get ingested into the engine, they, they are going to, you know, uh, cause damage to to mm. the blades, which is certainly something that you don't want. Mm. Um, so so that's why airlines tend to not fly in these conditions. Yeah, I can't imagine they'd be good at that temperature. You know, when they get into the engine, very high temperatures would cause them to melt and adhere. Um, you mentioned uh, computing resources. So given the, the types of resources that people might have heard about that are kicking around Victoria, like the Victoria and Life Sciences computer, which is used for simulating proteins, and that's a pretty big, fancy computer, what's the scale of computation you're talking about here? Com so, so the, to, yeah, the, I, I don't know. I don't want to use the word supercomputer because I think that's old. Old, but uh, <laughs> so the VLSEI system is a big blue gene. I think it's got thirty-six thousand cores. Um, so, so what it can do is it can do about a petaflop or a little bit less than a petaflop of uh, you know that's ten to the I think fifteen floating point operations per second. Uh, so that's a lot of number crunching at the same time. But the the biggest machine in the states can do twenty-seven petaflop, which is quite a bit more so oh, that's a factor yeah. of 30 more than than uh, the vlsci can do hmm. look richard uh, fascinating stuff it's good to see that um we're starting to you know get ahead of things I, I wonder whether in five years time you'll be saying you know geez we could have done this in half a day you know computers you know because they they advance so fast but um this sort of stuff is interesting i mean more and more people want to get more and more out of planes and make sure they're more efficient and one day we'll get the concord back in there so we can get to the uk in an hour rather than you know 36 um thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us and good luck with the work in the future Thank you. My pleasure. Professor Richard Sandberg is in the Department of Mechanical Engineering in the Melbourne School of Engineering at the University of Melbourne. And we are almost out of time. I should say uh, there's a whole other people tonight, thanks to some generosity of uh, the producers of the show who will be heading off to see Buzz Aldrin uh, at the Melbourne Town Hall. So if you're one of the lucky wow. subscribers who won those tickets over the preceding I don't know, month or so when we were giving them out, I'll be there drooling. Yeah, um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the answer to those questions was very commonly Mars. Yeah, uh, there was that trick, yeah. you know. So yeah, anyone wondering, the second smallest planet in the solar system is Mars. Um, assuming Pluto's out of the game, which I'm not sure I'm happy about. But anyway, um, there was a, I had a whole lot of other questions actually, which I never used, which were progressively harder and harder, and you know specific density of the money, anyway, uh, all sorts of stuff. But uh, look, if you're going along, folks, I uh, hope you enjoy it. I'll be there. Please say hello. We always love to um, believe that people are actually listening to the show, and, and if you can prove it, that would be cool. Um, but have a good night. It should be fun. Dr. Ray, thanks so much for coming in today. It was a pleasure. Good to see you. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. We've only got a few weeks left until oh Christmas. Goodness. So, yeah, a bit scary. A bit scary. Wow. And Dr. Diani, good to have you in too. Yeah, always fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next week, I think we will have our 100th guest for the year. 
So, 100th guess. Yeah, I might bring in a party popper or something. I'm not sure what I should do, but um, <laughs> we should probably do something. Maybe I'll just have a big drink before the show. Oh, hang on, no, we do that every yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Beach. Uh, uh, too slow. Um, <laughs> it's the sort of crap I get here, folks. It's out of control. Anyway, it's time for us to hand over to the team from Eat It. Um, t- I think uh, they're in the studio over there. Cam will work out soon that he's putting on a radio show in about 30 seconds. Uh, it's been a great pleasure talking to you again this week about science. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will have a chat again next week. We've got, I think, three uh, very early career researchers coming on next week, so it should be particularly fun. And a big thank you to our guest from today. Signing off from 3 Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3 Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.